Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 431. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. Our partnership with the magazine is so valuable, providing a forum for beautiful and inspiring editorial content in the Slow Flowers Journal section, month after month. Thanks to Florist Review, you can now order a subscription for yourself and give one as a gift this holiday season. Set your 2020 intention to enrich your personal and professional development. You can find the buy one, gift one special offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 431. Our first sponsor thanks goes to Mayash Wholesale Florist. Family-owned since 1978, Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S. And we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at mayesh.com. 50 States of Slow Flowers continues today with a full episode devoted to Washington, my home state. As I mentioned last week, this year-long project is coming to a close, and it has been so rewarding to bring you diverse voices and stories of passionate Slow Flowers members coast to coast. Washington's Slow Flowers community is one of the most active for many reasons, one of which is that I've been writing about and working closely with Pacific Northwest flower farmers and floral designers for the past decade, beginning when I was writing The 50 Mile Bouquet, which was about 2009 to 2012. During that time, in fact, I met today's guest, Rebecca Slattery of Persephone Farm. The idea of Slow Flowers as a book or any other format had yet to be hatched, but I was thrilled to be invited to Persephone Farm in Indianola, Washington, a ferry ride across the Puget Sound from Seattle and Edmonds. I actually kind of volunteered my services to help with making centerpieces and bouquets for a friend's daughter's wedding, which took place in 2011 at a nearby venue on the Kitsap Peninsula. That bride had persuaded Rebecca to let her out-of-town family and friends set up floral design production on tables next to the barn and, of course, to purchase flowers from her fields. When I arrived, I met Rebecca, but I also met her husband, Bill Richards. In one of those very small world surprises, Bill and I were acquainted with one another through Seattle's newspaper world. I knew Bill for his byline in two local dailies, including the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, where I was a home and garden columnist during the first decade of the 2000s. I had no idea who Bill really was and that he was married to a flower farmer. He earlier worked on the editorial teams for the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Bill was legendary in local journalism circles, and I remember having a nice chat with him while my friends set up their flowers. 
As you will hear Rebecca and I discuss, Bill died in 2014, and his spirit is very much evident at Persephone. I was so touched to have met him and equally grateful that I could return to Persephone to share a meal with Rebecca, take a walk through the late autumn landscape and growing grounds with her, and have a beautiful conversation, which you will now hear. Here's a bit more about Persephone Farm. The 6.5-acre farm in Kitsap County includes a little less than two cultivated acres, a yurt meadow, barn, packing shed, wooded area, open fields, and habitat for birds and other wildlife. Biodiversity is key to the farm's success. As Rebecca says, Persephone provides customers with a wide array of vegetables and flowers while maintaining a balanced ecosystem in the gardens. Rebecca uses careful crop rotations, homemade compost, cover crops, beneficial insectiaries, and patient observation to avoid synthetic pesticides and chemical fertilizers. Though not certified organic, her practices are stricter than the national organic standards. Deep ecology, closed-loop systems, and sustainability are the aim, and I love her term, morganic. Persephone Farm has been a pioneer in the community-supported agriculture movement, starting with 11 subscribers in 1991, making it one of the longest-running programs in the country. From the first week of June through the end of October, subscribers receive an armload of fresh-picked seasonal vegetables, herbs, and flowers from Persephone Farm. No traditional florist can match the just-picked quality of seasonal blossoms straight from the garden at Persephone. Rebecca and her crew grow many dozens of varieties of annuals, perennials, herbs, bulbs, shrubs, ornamental grasses, and unusual specialty botanicals for local weddings and events. In addition to designing for wedding clients, Persephone Farm offers fabulous fresh flowers by the bucket to the DIY customer. A highlight for many couples is a visit to the farm to stroll through the fields, selecting favorite flower combinations a week or two prior to the wedding. Brides, grooms, mothers, and others have all told Rebecca that, in retrospect, their visit to Persephone Farm was the most enjoyable checkmark they put on their wedding to-do list. Well, let's jump right in so you can meet Rebecca and hear more of her beautiful story, one that I think you'll find inspiring and encouraging no matter where you are in your relationship with growing and designing with local flowers. I'll have lots of photos to share in today's show notes for episode 431, as well as links to Persephone's social places. You can find it all at deborahprinzing.com. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. And I'm so excited today to introduce you to Rebecca Slattery of Persephone Farm here in Indianola, Washington. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Thanks for uh, saying yes when I asked if I could come interview you. It's nice to have you back. I have had you on my wish list for a long time because we met in 2011 and the podcast was not even an idea. I don't even think the Slow Flowers book was an idea. So... A lot has happened, but I'm delighted to come back. Um, and I will just say that we're wrapping up the 50 States of Slow Flowers series, and we're all the way to W, and this is the Washington State episode. And uh, so unbeknownst to you, I've had you on my list all year, that when I got to W, I was going to have a, a Persephone Farm episode. So thanks for, for being part of this series. And we're going to do the whole series with Rebecca and um, really dig deep into what she's doing here. So I guess I'll start by asking you to give us a snapshot of Persephone Farm, where we're located and uh, what's the scope of everything that you're doing here today. And then we'll talk about the history a little bit. 
Okay, so today Persephone Farm is in Indianola, Washington. So zoom in Seattle, we can picture where that is. Um, that's over on the east side of the Puget Sound. So a ferry ride away over on the west, um, there's a little sub-peninsula of the Great Olympic Peninsula, and it is called the Kitsap Peninsula. And some closer towns might be Kingston, Paulsbow, Bainbridge Island is well mm -hmm. known and about half an hour from here. So it's a tiny little throwback town carved out of the Great Northwest Forest. Mm. It's so true. In fact, we we were walking around earlier and you were showing me all these native uh, madrones that, uh, am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that were madrona. madrona that were kind of part of maybe the wild origins of this land along with the conifers. And uh, that's sort of the landscape that, that the sunshine is glowing on right now. Yeah, it's really, we are a world away from Seattle. We're technically an hour, if you know, if you really could just get right on the ferry and get right to the ferry. And <laughs> if if all the lights were green when you were driving. Yeah. But it's really, uh, we're a world away yeah. over here. It's, yeah. Yeah. Pretty quiet and still on the edge of being rural, I would say, mm -hmm. but suburbanizing mm -hmm. like so many places. Absolutely. And uh, you're, you mentioned the Puget Sound. So that influences your growing climate, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're, I'd say we're maritime zone eight. Mm -hmm. We're probably less than a mile from the water. And so it's mild here. Mm -hmm. It's mild in the, it's mild all the time. I mean, frankly, it's a little too chilly in the summer for mm. my own taste, mm -hmm. but it's a little, mm -hmm. you know, gentler in the winter too. So yeah. as examples, you said that you, it's hard to grow eggplant here. Yeah. Um, and it's, easy to leave your dahlias tubers in the ground. <laughs> so it, folks, that will help place where Rebecca is. Yeah. Um, so you talked about where you are. How, what is the nature of this farm in terms of what you're growing and kind of the, the mix and the scale? Okay. Um, so it's a diversified farm. So we grow vegetables and flowers. I'd say altogether, it's probably a little over an acre of production on a six and a half acre property. Um, I think flowers are about a third of our growing area and about a third of our sales. And um, the rest is all mixed vegetables that mm -hmm. we sell locally, all just right around here as direct as we can. Mm. Um, and you are, are, you're not certified organic, are you, Rebecca? Right. No. Okay. But our practices are... Yeah. Stricter than the National Organic Standards, we try to take into account all the stipulations that they have, and I'm really aware of them, and, you know, don't use any kind of synthetic chemicals or pesticides. But we have some different agenda items that aren't part of the National Organic Standards. A key mission for us is minimizing landfill-bound materials and mm. really trying to reduce, reuse, recycle, like really truly trying to do that and mm -hmm. we're trying to do more and more with low-till no-till type of stuff mm -hmm. we think about water use there's you know little uh buffers trying to have habitat for birds and insects so a lot of things that the national organic standards really isn't addressing are more core values of mm -hmm. what is important mm -hmm. to me and to those who come and um, enjoy this farm well and and i guess because you're food clients are CSA customers and restaurants, they're going to want to know that you're providing organic 
you know, using organic farming practices for the mm-hmm. food, but that benefits the flower customer as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I know, I wonder how much that will become a thing too, you know, that as customers dial in to the toxicity as well as the carbon footprint of the South American, Central American imported flowers, you know, whether the organicness, um, the sustainability factor of the flowers will become more important. That is not really a question that I find the customers asking, but I know I think about it when I don't stick my nose in one of those Ecuadorian roses. (laughs) Like, I don't really want to be breathing this. I know. And when you talked about just like... um, Earlier, before we put on the recorder, you used the term biodiversity, right? Mm. How do you? What does that actually mean for this farm? Is it? it it's an interesting term that it probably has a, it, a more of a personal definition for you than some kind of industry term, right? Yeah. Well, for me, it just means you know, as a as a marketing thing, like to. Diversity is strength. I mean, mm. as a social value, mm-hmm. diversity is strength. Oh, I love and I it. feel like in a marketing way, the reason that this farm has been successful for 30 years is that it's extremely biodiverse. And even though eggplants don't really grow here, we're trying to grow a few and and every other thing, flowers and vegetables that we can grow here. We you know, we want to bust it out and try mm-hmm. them and try to help our customers enjoy and appreciate and get to know some things that really do want to grow in this cool, moist mm-hmm. maritime climate, which maybe aren't typically staples, flowers right. or vegetables that right. they, you know, m- are familiar with from warmer places. Well, the other thing that I think I uh, wanted to uh, follow up on with that is when we were walking around the farm, you were talking about your very intentional crop rotation and that that is, is kind of interrupts disease spreading and um, probably pests that like particular crops. Is that just sort of like a, a calendar schedule that you follow or is it more that you you just in your in your bones, you're like, I know I'm moving that next season, you know, just because yeah. you, you, you live and breathe it so closely. Yeah. Cause uh, right. That is definitely <laughs> true. Um, but well, so part of, you know, organic deep, you know, true organic principles is about, you know, constantly rotating crops and trying to have break disease cycles by having the longer rotations possible with disease prone, plant families. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons that cut flowers are so key to what we do here is that in addition to providing, yes, food for the pollinators that we all care so much about and are so deeply in trouble everywhere, it also is encouraging um, habitat and forage for beneficial insects Mm -hmm. that allows us to keep our practices organic. We're not even using any insecticides which are you know certified organic Mm. we're trying to have checks and balances as Mm -hmm. much as we can and then just use row covers to exclude pests when we have to but then this crop rotation having the flower crops running through these fields and scattered here and there is allowing us to break up the you know same old same old onion family um, cabbage family, carrot family, because, you know, these flowers, my gosh, there's, who can even know the Scrofulariaceae family? There's not a lot of, <laughs> no vegetables in that family. <laughs> right. I mean, when you're talking about diverse, you, you have, I'm sure dozens, if not hundreds of 
different flower varieties that you're growing, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> Dozens yeah. is low. It's probably cl- over a hundred. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's, it's so many. I yeah. Mean, I can't even really count them all. Yeah. And I definitely do not know the family of every flower. We'd crop. have to get out the AHS A to Z book and double check that. <laughs> but you're basically, um, I think, let me restate what I think you're saying is that the more diversified you are, the more chance that your farm will not be succumb to a, a, a bad pest problem or a disease problem. Or the effects of, you know, our changing climate that we just don't really know. You know, we've had these super hot years. This year was a really cool damp year. The forest fires and the smoke that comes through here. I mean, there's mm. resilience. Mm-hmm. I feel like this idea of biodiversity and just busting out as many different things, right? We just, we don't know. There's so many challenges that uh-huh. could come our way. So uh-huh. just having the biggest possible mix, I think, is keeps it interesting and, you know, uh-huh. I think keeps us financially viable. Right. You you would, well, I also think personally, because I know you're just obsessed with growing and gardening, you'd be completely unhappy and bored if you had a monocrop. Exactly. It would not be the same kind of farming that you want to do. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how is the farm set up with the with the mix of vegetables and flowers in terms of um, your marketing of those? I know the CSA is one place where both flowers and food uh, come together in in the package that you're offering customers, right? Right. And that's, we, we were talking earlier that uh, my CSA from the very beginning necessarily is vegetables and flowers together. And I try to help my customers not feel guilty and feel delicious Mm -hmm. about enjoying these flowers every week. And I, you know, try to let them know what, what we've just been talking about, not only the pollinators and beneficials and crop rotation, but, you know, how flowers are also one of the, you know, legs of the stool that keep this farm financially viable. So, I was saying our CSA customers have two choices, and that is a bouquet every week or a bouquet every other week. That's your concession. Their vegetables. I mean, those <laughs> yeah. are the, those are the two choices that they can yeah. have, and so um, that's our CSA, which is weekly. But we also sell at the Bainbridge Island Farmers Market. I was one of the founding members of that wow. market back thirty years ago. Oh my goodness! And. Um, you know, flowers are a big part of our, you know, I'd say probably a third of our sales there. And I think we're the most substantial flower grower and flower presence there. And one thing that's great about the farmer's market for the challenges that are go with that too, um, is that it's just, it's such a good opportunity to just be out there showcasing what we have. And so a lot of our weddings and events and you know on you know even when somebody has a death they more and more you know people call me and they're like oh I've always admired your flowers at the market is there any chance that you know you'd be available to Mm -hmm. do these funeral arrangements or a memorial or something like that so I mean it's kind of worth Mm. the price of admission just for the advertisement of being there you said you said you were one of the founding members of the Bainbridge Island flower farmers market so that is a is that a seasonal market that is um it started 30 years ago? started 30 years wow. ago. Um, yep, starts end of March, beginning of April, goes till Christmas. And it's really, it's the most um, hyper-local market in Washington State. In fact, it's really looked at by the State Farmers Market Association as the poster child of where they'd like to see, we all would like to see farmers markets 
going, that everything there is either grown on Bainbridge Island or North Kitsap School District. Uh Um, And then with the exception that there's some contract vendors, if there's products which we just don't really have enough of locally, Uh meat is one that Uh comes to mind, dairy we haven't even been able to attract. But anyway, we can bring in growers from outside, Uh but it's not just... A mishmash of mm-hmm. everything from Washington State Farms right. and Waters, which is the more common model around right. the state. So right. Interesting. It's kind of this idea: the food you eat and the wine you drink is the landscape you create. That it's we're all each other's neighbors, and we all we know our shoppers, and they, if they ask, "Oh, are your products organic?" I just am like, "Come on out! I would love." to talk to you more about that Mm -hmm. and show you around Mm -hmm. and answer your questions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it has that hyper locality to it, the Bainbridge market. When, when you started, were you the first vendor who had flowers um, back in the early days? Well, interestingly, that market started, there's the, the core anchor farm vendors were all about the same age. We all started at just about the same time. We all founded that market. Most of us do have flowers as part of our mix. Really? But I think over time, it's for a variety of reasons, I've just kept it as a bigger part of it's my an, it's, a, it's kind of an anchor of your brand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I have a special physical location at the market that I was offered to be the kind of front and center location because it is so splashy and beautiful mm-hmm. with the yeah. flowers and just, it draws people in yeah and our displays are really extra special nice and well <laughs> we're gonna share a, a beautiful watercolor that uh was painted of your booth uh by a plain air artist who actually happened to also at the be a flower lover and grower um but you have you were pointing out to me that um you have this these these metal oil cans they're like the commercial size, right? Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. that you use to display your flowers. So I mean, just even that kind of visual treat of color and pattern. And yeah, everybody mm-hmm. knows us for those olive oil. Okay. Really? That's are they really hard? kind of our brand or trademark. Yeah. And are they hard to come by? Well, we, so we sell to a lot of restaurants too, okay. in addition to the CSA and farmer's market. And then I have this whole, you know, wedding design business that I do too. Um, but because we are at the restaurants all the time, they're the ones with these beautiful commercial size olive oil tins and are always excited when they get a new pattern. And anyway. They yeah. say them for you? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I love it. So we bring them the vegetables and then we bring home all their olive oil cans. Yeah, I love it. Um, are you doing, um, you mentioned design and I know design is part of your portfolio here at Persephone Farm, but um, at the market, are you taking design bouquets as well as straight bunches or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And do you find that you've been able to nudge the consumer base uh, along the price continuum so that they're they're valuing that? Yes, it's challenging, but yes, mm-hmm. and we have we have a local grocery chain that also offers really beautiful local flowers, and of course they have to mark them up again because sure. you know, they're the middle person. Right. So the consumer education piece that we're really trying to get out and need to get out more is that the, the really the same, the, really the very same flowers are available at the market for like 30 to 50% less cost. 
And oh. they were definitely picked just the day before oh, when goodness. they're at the grocery store. You don't really know where they delivered that day, the day before, how right. long have they been there. Well, so, there's just, there's more distance between the flowers and the consumer in that model. Yeah. Even Although, though they're probably better than most grocery stores, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And they do have a lot of really beautiful local flowers. And I mean, these days, if they're 50, 60, 70, $80 beautiful bouquets. But I mean, that's a lot of money for mm-hmm. a supermarket you know, grab and co bouquet. And like our flowers at the market are usually $20, $25 a mm-hmm. bouquet. So, mm-hmm. you know, for really the same varieties, uh, oftentimes, you know, I don't personally sell at the grocery stores, but uh, other flower farmers right in our neighborhood are. Right. So that's a message to try to get out to consumers is it's worth that extra. If you love flowers and they're part of your weekly shopping, like, yes, you're getting your toilet paper and cat food at the market, at the <laughs> supermarket, but make a little jaunt over to the farmer's market yeah. if you're going to get that bouquet. Cause you can get honestly almost two bouquets for the price of one. Right. And the, we've talked about Bainbridge Island and in the, it seems to me that in the 30 years that you've been involved with that market and also been farming, uh, this whole region has kind of gone up scale because of, you know, being by the water, people wanting to um, be close to the city but have that ferry ride, but also the development of the peninsulas and the island have brought more wealth to this region. So maybe there's more destination weddings. I mean, are, are you seeing that that's part of why there is demand for local flowers? Or uh, I know some days are probably you're happier about it than others, but yeah, I don't know. My my customers, that may be true in the wedding part of the business, Mm -hmm. but a lot of my customers for vegetables and flowers are more just kind of the sort of the true believers. Mm -hmm. I would say Mm -hmm. they just, you know, they're They're committed to supporting farms. Yeah. And they're not, you know, a lot, most of the people that shop with me have known me for years and, are not necessarily, you know, so well off. They just, you know, they value fresh, nice, healthy food Mm -hmm. and, you know, these pretty local flowers Mm -hmm. that they can get there. So everything you just said is totally true. And I don't know that I necessarily feel like my customers in particular are, you know, got it. That. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I was, I think I was kind of looking at the parallel, maybe in real estate, like it's gotten much more uh, affluent in the real estate market over here from back when people could buy a little shack on Bainbridge Island and, you know, a f- find, you know have a view, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of which, you started on Bainbridge with leased land and now you're uh, in Indianola, which is about, as you said, about a half an hour about away. About a half an hour. And yeah. just for everybody who's, you know, hasn't figured this out, there's a bridge at the north end of Bainbridge. <laughs> we're not we're not taking this over by little rowboat or anything. That's right. That's a good thing to, to mention. So yeah. there's a bridge that is at the north end of Bainbridge Island. And so the farm started there um, all the way back in 1991. And first we were on one little piece of leased land and I had some business partners and then it kind of expanded and we did on two pieces of land and then ultimately it was three separate parcels all about a mile apart from each other and all with a slightly different aspect and different soil type and it was kind of cool to have these three different Hmm. sites and this is a moment that I might say um, 
I do a lot of teaching and training of aspiring farmers and I can wax on and on about the benefits of working on leased land. There mm. is tons that I really would recommend to really? farmers about it. That it's, you know, it took me 10 years of working multiple jobs, farming being one of them, but all kinds of other things too, to really be able to figure out that A, my body could do this. B, financially, I could really take the leap and buy my own place. Um, just really mm -hmm. the timing of it and just to really see if it really was my dream to do it. And hmm. um, I just, I'm not a particularly handy person. And having another landowner that, you know, you just say, oh, wouldn't it be great if I had five more water spigots going down this end of the line. And they're like, well, this is an improvement to my property. Sure. I'll put that in for you. And, mm -hmm. oh, you want improvements to the little, you know, shed where you have all your cooler space. That's a good idea. We could make that better for you. And, you know, there, there's a lot of things that That's are very good about leased land. And I think it's a terrific way for people to start and, like I said, I did it for 10 years. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's like you incubated yourself yep. before you, it also kind of maybe figured out what your mix and your model is Yeah. in terms of, yeah. like when you were on the lease land, were you also growing flowers? Yep. Okay. It's always been part okay. of my mix. So back, back in 1990, I did the venerable UC Santa Cruz mm. apprenticeship in ecological mm. horticulture that I know so many of us have mm. done. And Part of that Alan Chadwick model is just integrating flowers as just a part of, of, of everything in your life, of your, of your garden, of your home, of your spirit. It's just flowers are just part of what you learn in that program. Yes, you're right. And right after I completed that is when I came to Bainbridge, back to Bainbridge, and decided to launch in with these other people and start the farm. And so from the... Just from the very beginning, flowers and vegetables have just been side by side. And mm. just, they have always been and will always be a piece of the way I want to do things. You're so right about that program, the Cass Fist program, which mm -hmm. I can't believe I remember how to say. Um, I've been to the property in Santa Cruz at the farm and, and the, 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 it, I, I get the sense that, and we're going to talk about your internship program, but I get the sense that it this the case is that people think they're going to learn about growing food and they leave being passionate about growing flowers as well as food mm -hmm. um and so it sounds like when you went that you what what were you thinking when you when you studied at that pro that program was it to grow be an organic a food farmer well so when i did that program i had a lot of experience growing vegetables. I was really close to not grains and oils, but you know, food self-sufficiency with canning and freezing and drying mm -hmm. and just really a very serious gardener. Mm. So to be honest, I, it was not for me so much about growing vegetables, but that program gave me the confidence to sell vegetables and to make the transition from home gardener to market gardening. Got it. And then years later, so then I started, you know, doing this market gardening and on like a quarter acre and then, you know, had the second piece of land and then second piece of land, third piece of land. Um, and because flowers were part of it, people started asking me, customers started asking me, oh, would you consider doing my friend's wedding? Oh, 
you know, because they these, loved your aesthetic, and they yeah. knew, yeah, that and they knew there were not a lot of flower growers then. So I was totally, by gosh and by golly, like, how do you make a corsage, <laughs> a flower girl crown? Oh, sure, I can do that. So then, a few years later, I did another great program that I'll give a big shout out to the. Um, Floral Design Institute used to have a campus in mm-hmm. Portland and mm-hmm. Seattle and Vancouver. I think now they're just mainly in Portland yes. and do it online. But that was a great program. And just as the UC Santa Cruz program helped me transition from home gardener to market gardener because it gave me the confidence to be able to price and sell and and just take it to that professional level. Well, so that um, floral design certificate, again just helped me go from kind of loving flowers and playing with them to being more serious about how to price them, how to actually make a corsage Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a flower Mm -hmm. girl crown. So that was a really, really good program. And then now since then I've gone back and taught classes there. And anyway, I, I think really well of Leanne and David. They were their mentors to me. You took the time to invest in that level of knowledge. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. There's a lot of people who talk about being self-taught I would say you can only go so far being self-taught and you do need to, you know, it's nice to be able to have resources and along your journey, stop and, and get that knowledge because now you've put your own spin on it and your aesthetic is unique and uh, probably a lot different than other people who've done the same kind of training oh, who yeah. maybe are in retail flower shops and that sort oh, of sure. thing. Yeah. 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 Um, can we talk about your internship program? Yeah. Um, I'm so impressed. We walked around your beautiful grounds here, and, and it is the middle-ish third week of, no- of November, And but we got a really sunny day, and it's so beautiful out, and I got to see your whole uh, setup here. And I have, like I said, was here, what, eight years ago? So it, it, the major buildings I remember, but all your yurts and your small structures, I don't remember that you had those, but you probably did. But you so, have you have a campus here, yeah. <laughs> a I just, compound. I've never said that before, but that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So describe your setup and why do you have all these structures? Okay, so I did as I was saying in 1990. I did this great program, which is itself this apprenticeship in ecological horticulture, where for eight months you go to the UC Santa Cruz campus. At that time, you lived in a tent, or I told teepee down there and lived in this teepee, which wow. was really the grand manner of all the tent city. Oh, but anyway, funny. I think now they have more formalized tents that people live in that are more permanent. But um, anyway, that that apprenticeship program was so excellent that pretty much as soon as I came back up here to the Northwest and started my own farm, I kind of got my legs under me for a couple of years. But then I took an apprentice and I pretty much modeled my program and my all my growing practices and making my own potting mix with a same old UCSC recipe. And, oh, I love it. And 50 foot beds with, you know, mixing flowers and vegetables. My farm still looks remarkably like the down garden at mm. UCSC. Mm-hmm. So, so I started having apprentices. I had one and then I had two and my goodness, now we're up to four or five a year. But um, these are not always young, but often young people. Um, many times people who are interested in starting their own small scale, diverse farm. 
but not always. People come for different reasons. And one thing that's really great about it is in the same way that I feel like leasing land is just a great way to start and just try it out, that there are many people who come to this program who decide after a season that this is really not what they want to do, uh-huh. that you know their uh-huh. backs or knees or work ethic or being out in the elements, you know, there's lots of things about it um, that aren't right, but yeah. they, but they get to walk for a season in the farmer's shoes and try it out. And if it's not right, then it's not right, but they get, they will never, you know, get a bunch of ranunculus again and think of it, you know, the same way as when they've had to, you know, deal with it and figure it out how to harvest these things here. So anyway, so it's people come for different reasons. And um, it used to be that they came because they wanted to be vegetable farmers. Mm -hmm. But more and more as the local flower movement is, you know, growing and they're all on their phones and their Instagrams and um, <laughs> they're bitten by this the romance. Bug. Yeah. And they pretty much everybody who comes through here, even if they are not interested in flowers, particularly at the beginning, they are bitten by it. And they, if they go on to start their own operations, in several cases, they are just flower farms or um, I think most all of them incorporate flowers in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. so so the you've done this for like 20 years well closer to 30 wow okay so you really are a pioneer in this region and uh as i, I said i knew you were gonna use I that know. word <laughs> can we come up with a different word like um that's fine yeah we'll think of a new term for pioneer it's sort of like curate like i'm so over that word me too where did it all of a sudden come from Oh I don't God, know. So it means like that. organize and collect or something like that. Yeah. Um, you you were okay. You were an early adopter. Um, we'll say that other other than uh, the p word. But uh, that just makes me wonder. You know, like how many lives you have influenced, how many other farms you've influenced by offer having this opportunity. It's it, it's. I know you've become close friends with a lot of your interns because you're living, they're living here yeah, and you're seeing them day in and day out and it, yeah. you can't help but become yeah. fond of them. There's been more than 50 okay. over these low, these many years um, who've come through this program and lots of them have become lifelong friends. I, of course, I have a special spot for ones who do go on and start their own farms mm-hmm. because now we're colleagues and in some ways some of them are becoming my mentors mm. in ways that they're developing themselves developing their businesses oh i um, love that they have lots to teach and offer me and i always offer lifelong consultation and support and networking and because we do as you said um circling back to our campus here they come for eight months and we are living and working really closely. I have a farmhouse at the top of the property and then there's this yurt meadow down below where they have houses, yurts and a tiny house and all kinds of different little structures and a shared kitchen and a shared bathroom. And so we're really, you know, we're living part of this, that Santa Cruz model too is the reason that they had us live in tents was they used to always say one of the one of the take-homes from that program is 
what separates a successful organic farmer from a con from a conventional farmer is the organic farmer has to have a very keen sense of observation mm. and really noticing and really paying attention because we don't have as many tools in our toolkit as the conventional farmer who has right. this whole arsenal of chemicals. So right. we do want to notice at the front end the, you know, downy mildew starting on the delphinium leaves or the thrips that might is that or the you know, little earwigs, what is chewing those dahlia leaves and just to try to figure out how are we going to change our management practices to address that since mm. we don't have malathion to spray mm -hmm. on it or whatever. So you're living in community with your fellow interns, but you're living in community with what you're growing as well. Mm -hmm. And just that, I love that analogy of being an obser observer, mm -hmm. a close observer. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and they're curious about your future um, internship or apprentice program, so how how would they go about applying or, or how do you manage that whole process? Is it like, have you already lined up everybody for 2020 uh, season? I haven't. Um, I may make some adjustments to the program. I may have a farm manager who comes to work more closely with me and in between me and the intern. Mm -hmm. So that's might be a new position mm -hmm. that, um, so this winter you'll be pulling some of those details together. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. But anyway, you could find me at mm -hmm. my website, persephonefarm.com. And I, I really am entertaining ideas of, um, of bringing in maybe some more experienced people, some people who might want to stay longer. Not that I, I may, I, it's very likely that there'll still be opportunities for sure. newbies too, but sure. maybe a little more. Mm -hmm. I don't know, seasoned mm -hmm. continuity. But you generally post those openings. Um, yeah, there's a few different okay. websites that link farmers and, um, you know, aspiring interns. There's Good Food Jobs is a great one. Or there's another one, ATTRA, What Appropriate Technology Transfer to Rural Areas. It's actually a U.S. federal government mm. program. One of the great things that our taxes is doing is wow. having this really, I think it's the best website, actually, wow. um, that helps yeah people who are looking for farm work. Okay. Typically internships, but yeah. not only. Oh, good. We'll put a link to farmers. that. Yeah. Um, and before we wrap up, I do want to talk about how you, as a sole farmer, a, a one-woman show, are, are making this work. Because it is all pretty and sparkly today, and we just had an amazing, fabulous lunch that you made with all your end-of-the-season vegetables. It's eggplant parmesan, which is making my mouth water to think about. But life is... It, it, they're long days, and, and I, I'm... I don't want to paint a, like a, a dreamy, you know, picture of you walking around in a, a calico dress with a sun with a sun hat, you know, and um, making daisy chains. It's it's that probably doesn't happen very much here, does well, it? Well, one thing that's kind of hilarious, Deborah, about what you just said is anybody who knows me and knows this farm is actually the calico dress. Oh, look at the sun hat and the bare feet. Like that is really all totally true. Oh, I love it. Um, okay, so, I, I mean, take it back. So there is. I mean, yes, as anybody who listens to this podcast knows, there is this really dreamy component. And then there's 
the scrubbing of the buckets and the hauling of the full water buckets and the taking all the buckets out of your delivery vehicles and putting the, you know, there's like, there's the, so many other the aspects routine of the part, business yeah. that are not the glamorous <laughs> calico dress and dirty knees and bare feet, which are also part of our part of your brand <laughs> part of our part of our mix around here but um it's to have the interns are just amazed that it's like wow we, we we really don't have to wear shoes like it's okay with you if we just like go in bare feet and i'm like well looks like your farmer mentor is doing it i mean not if you're gonna use the rototiller and the weed whacker i yeah we need to yeah be, we got some liability issues yeah there. we gotta be sensible here but you uh, know, a day in day out but that's cool um yeah, well, so one thing that I've noticed listening um, to your podcast is how many of the farms are um, couples, often, you know, a husband-wife team, um, or husbands or partners who back up and support the flower farm. With like an off-farm income. Yeah. Off-farm income yeah. or, you know, building the flower cart or oh, you know, right. repairs and maintenance <laughs> around the farm. Or, Extra set of hands. Yeah, different kinds of things. So I used to have that too. And um, a few years ago, my husband died really suddenly and he was a very instrumental part of this farm in lots of different ways, both keeping the home fires, dishes washed and, you know, floors vacuumed and, you know, as well as mowing and weed whacking and doing our restaurant deliveries. And I mean, really doing an absolute ton of stuff. And so, um, running this business all by myself, I, I guess I just want to say, do not take for granted all of you who have your support person backing you up. Um, it's better. It's, better to have that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I have not recreated that since my husband died and I it is a lot harder and yeah, it's not as great. Yeah. I mean, having it all. having the interns uh obviously they're picking up a lot of of the labor demands, but it's more the psychic mm. pressure and 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 responsibility that mm. you are having to do solo and and these you know new like what's new what's ahead what you know where where can this farm go it's would be really nice to have that person that you come home day in day out to bounce ideas off Mm -hmm. of and Mm -hmm. can reflect back to you why this might or might not be a good direction to move in Mm -hmm. that i um right without that it's you know we kind of like you said, we are early adopters, pioneers. We've been doing this a long time and um, we found the systems that work and it's, and that's good. Yeah. And we have the systems that work and um, we've been financially viable from the get go and, you know, support this internship program and the classes. That's a neat part of the internship program too, is that they get to take these classes through WSU Um that all the farm interns in the area participate in this curriculum and each mm-hmm. farmer who takes interns offers a class and the class that Persephone offers is, imagine this, the cut, <laughs> the cut flower oh, piece. Oh my that, God, I, can I come to it next year? Yeah, you I'd should. love to sit in on it. Yeah, that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great class. And then your interns go to other farms to yeah. take classes? Yeah, oh. go to other farms. And then also WSU has classes that are things that maybe none of the farms 
it is their strong area or just the WSU professors will be awesome at teaching soil science or sure. entomology or, yeah, and then they get free admission to other kinds of uh, classes in like this tri-county area. It's a really great aspect. Is there a name for that program? I think it's called the Kitsap Farm Internship Curriculum. Oh, wow. How how wonderful. Yeah, it's great. It was our there was the brainchild of a few of the farmers for a number of years and we just are working so hard that we couldn't pull it off and when WSU agreed to basically be the administrative support sure, for right. it and host it and host it and publicize it and send the links to the directions to where everybody's supposed to be and it really and give some credit too that if you complete the whole program and there are enough WSU classes involved, you do qualify for a small amount, but some continuing education credits as part of it. Yeah. Uh, And then with those credits also, if somebody did want to go for a loan, uh, like a FSA backed loan, you get like a little higher score or points or something for having this educational training. So yeah, it's amazing. It is. It's neat. It's a neat aspect of it. We're we're really proud of it. Do you do workshops for the public on this farm? Like flower floral design workshops or that sort of thing not particularly okay. no i've done some little kind of pop-up ones at the bainbridge farmers market just sort of for fun and some contests but i haven't really done that yeah it sounds like the farm is is working really well and to add another facet of uh public events is just you're at capacity right now yes and I don't know what's going to happen moving forward. I get more and more sort of requests and read about these, you know, experiences that people want to have on farms. um, I don't know where I'm going. I do not see it this year, but it's, if somebody came and partnered with me and wanted to do some of the management and publicity part of it, and I don't know, it's, it's You're possible. Open. You're yeah. open. Yeah. We did You're... an outstanding in the fields dinner mm-hmm. here this past summer, mm-hmm. which is a big honor to get wow. invited to do that. And wow, that had is... 250 people here for dinner. And it sold out in six minutes. It was the first one to sell out in the I whole country. I did not know that, Rebecca. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, you'll have to check it out. There's some really beautiful photos. Okay. I would love yeah. to. So did you, can we just stop for a second? Outstanding in the field is like the original farm to table dying yeah, experience it's a pretty big thing. that everybody else has emulated and copied. Yeah. And, I mean, which is fine. Nobody can have a corner on the market of this being exclusive now. It's it's just become a, a phenomenon that I'm selling out in six minutes is crazy. 250 so, tickets at $265 a ticket in uh, six minutes. Mind-blowing. So where did you put the... Did you have the lower field for the dining? It was a huge L. Mm. So I, you know, I had this kind of psychic moment I don't know something was saying to me to concentrate the the main part of our annual flower patch which of course in the height of the season is just a fire yeah gorgeous um really in this one corner of the farm where I I never have put it in this one corner of the farm and I I just there was a lot of reasons why that didn't make sense but I just kept coming back to, for some reason, the flowers needed to be there. And then I guess it was late February or March or something when now the crops are set where everything is going to be where it's going to be. And this map is carefully drawn up. And I was contacted by the 
outstanding in the fields people and the chef that um, Brendan McGill from Hitchcock restaurant mm. uh, to do this. And they came out almost immediately and did this site visit and came up with this idea of this long, cause they, everybody sits at one long table and it can be an arc or it can be an L or it can be mm-hmm. a line, but mm-hmm. it is one long table. And then given the, slope and the layout of our property it was an l and guess what was right in the middle of that l your flowers this unbelievable flower patch in the middle of july that became your decor i mean it was so unbelievably beautiful so i and my team chose to sit at the corner of the l so that we were just absolutely surrounded by well you know the middle of july like what all cosmos and i don't know what the heck was down there cinoglossum and like Jella and um, Zinnias and Lavatera and Godisha and just like so many things in July and just all at their peak of beauty. It and was then, pretty and, special. Oh, I'm, I do want to see the photos. And then the chef integrated food from this farm into that yeah. menu as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, all food from this farm. Wow. Yeah. And congratulations. That's you're gonna have to recover from that now. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> Maybe was, you'll do your own. Yeah. You know, um, A person who was part of the crew of that, who are these amazing young people who work so hard and they show up and they, I mean, they put up this incredible table. Yeah, it's like overnight. They do a bathroom. I mean, they do so much. And it is literally overnight. And anyway, one person from that crew just sent me an email and said, I am not just saying this. She said, I was a staff member on Outstanding in the Fields. Your farm was my absolute favorite one of all the ones that we did, almost one a night all season. And if you have any internship openings for the season ahead, I have two permaculture design certificates and I would really love to be considered because you guys are the real deal and I really loved your farm. Wow. I know. That gives me the shivers. I was pretty excited. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is really exciting. Yeah. I... I am really curious about those dinners. I've heard that they don't decorate the tables with flowers. Yeah, right. Is that true? I didn't push it. Okay. I looked at all their photos and stuff, mm-hmm. and it's almost never do they have mm-hmm. flowers. Yeah. They do try to do it family style. Right. So, I mean, there are all these platters of food sure. and things. But I thought about sweet peas were at their height right then, be super simple and just like, you know, tiny little pretty sweet pea arrangements down the table. But I think it's not their aesthetic and I just kind of wanted to enjoy it too yeah. and not <laughs> make 200 well, little sweet pea decorations. Right. But having the flower, basically being in the middle of the annual flower patch kind of solved that problem. I guess mm-hmm. that's what I was going to say is you gave people a feast for the eyes. True, but I don't know why they don't do a mm-hmm. little more with table yeah. decor because uh, certainly if the farm is a flower farm, and as I say, I didn't push it, Yeah, but I did kind of wonder yeah. why they didn't suggest yeah. it, but I mean... I don't know either, but it's okay. I I, I think you, you kind of gave... You, your wow factor was there, so oh, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, and where we were in the L, so in the center of the L was this big, I don't know, many hundreds of row feet of annual flowers, but behind us on the backside of the L, sort of an amphitheater shape 
the way our farm is laid out is the perennial garden. So there was all these beautiful perennial flowers that we really did haul ass and weed and make look really nice for this dinner in a way that we normally wouldn't care so carefully about the perennials at the height of the season. That's neat. A lot of volunteers showed up from everywhere and really made that perennial garden sing. Oh, I'm happy to hear about that. Well, this has been so lovely. I I don't want it to end, so I will end by asking you if there's anything else that I didn't ask you that we should touch on before we wrap up. I know. I was wondering that, too. Um, I don't know. I. It's just, I'm just so honored to be mm. chosen. When you were like, oh, these 50 states of flowers and... Um, do you want to be Washington? And I'm like, me? Why would why would you choose me? Well, I, d- I never want people to feel like they have to be the like the poster child for the whole state cut flower industry or floral designer flower farming. We're we can't accomplish that in 45 minutes. But just hearing your story is so important and so inspiring for others. That um, I appreciate your generosity in talking about the highs and lows and really some of the tough decisions and. Um, and your values and, and all of those things that make up Persephone Farm. And I think we should end by talking about the name Persephone because we didn't talk about that. And I meant to ask you that earlier. And then we'll we'll get a photo of your mural of Persephone that you have here at the farm. And that'll put it all into perspective for people. Yeah. Well, so, right, we're not Persephone Farm. <laughs> and it's so funny these days, you know, like, what? That's, when we, when way, we went to school, they all taught the Greek myths, and we all knew the myth of Persephone, but yeah. um, today, not everybody does. So I was going to say, that's how the GPS would pronounce it, probably. Oh so allow me to take a moment and let your listeners who might not know the myth of Persephone have a little quick take home about it, that um, Persephone is the Greek goddess of spring and flowers and rebirth. She's the daughter of Demeter, the Earth Mother, and a quick telling of the myth would be that uh, Persephone and her mother, Demeter, were gathering flowers on the Earth's surface, and all was well with mortals. And um, Hades, the god of the underworld, came and took a shine to Persephone, and the traditional reading of the myth is abducted her and took her to the underworld. I think there's a more modern feminist interpretation that she went under her own will. But in any case, <laughs> she was was to spend um, the doubt down being the bride of Hades in the underworld. Well, her, her mother was bereft and cried tears, which are the raindrops and snowdrops that are the winter, and said that um, until Persephone would come back, her daughter would return to her, that there would be no crops and Mm. there would be no food and that there would be no mortals. And so this was never going to do. And so Hades' brother, Zeus, king of all the gods, created this bargain, struck this bargain that for half the year, Persephone would be down below with Hades. And then for the other half of the year, she would come back and wander the earth's surface, gathering flowers Mm. with her mother. And so this myth is what explains the seasons. And as I said, Persephone is the Greek goddess of spring and flowers and rebirth. So it just it meant fits. Yeah, it, it's so fitting. Exactly. And I'm glad you chose that name. And uh, now when we go out to your barn and I would like to take your picture with your mural, it'll 
put it all into perspective. People don't think you're trying to be Persephone, you know, personified, right? No, but they do sometimes call me that. And <laughs> and as all flower farmers can tell you, there is kind of this journey to the underworld that this time of year, November, you know. You feel. We are starting to feel like the super short days, the darkness. We're so exhausted and thrilled that we've had this killing frost, but we're also kind of taking this journey downward and I you know come February March April when we're all putting our tiny seeds in the ground we are absolutely um you know ebullient with that promise of spring and for her return exactly I love it what a great way to end this conversation Rebecca thank you so much yeah thank you much for joining me today for a visit to Persephone Farm. What a special extended episode and experience for you to hear. A luxury to return and to have a leisurely conversation to share with you. Our next sponsor thanks goes to Northwest Green Panels. Based in Madras, Oregon, Northwest Green Panels designs and constructs a wide array of wood-framed greenhouses offering versatility, style, and durability. Their greenhouses are 100% Oregon-made using twin-wall polycarbonate manufactured in Wisconsin, making Northwest Green Panel structures a great value for your backyard. The 8x8-foot modern slant greenhouse has become the essential hub of my cutting garden. Check out photos of my greenhouse in today's show notes or visit nwgreenpanels.com to see more. I can't close out today's episode without a reminder to you that we're in the midst of an early bird promotion for the Slow Flowers Summit. You'll want to take advantage of the $100 off member or general registration for the 2020 Slow Flowers Summit and purchase your ticket to the Slow Flowers Summit before December 31st. If you've not checked out the details, you can find links to all the exciting news about our partnership with Filoli Historic House and Garden, our venue for days one and two of the summit. That's June 28th and 29th. And also our fabulous speaker lineup. By the way, day three is an exclusive rare access available only to summit attendees. We'll be going on a behind the scenes tour led by our friend, Christina Stemble, CEO of Farm Girl Flowers. You can check out those details in today's show note links as well. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 556,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and I invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprincing.com. Our final sponsor thanks today goes to the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. 
Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Mm-hmm.